0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Hello and welcome to the APTA Neurology Section Vestibular Rehabilitation Special Interest Group Podcast on Virtual Reality and Vestibular Rehabilitation. My name is Nikki DeSalvio I'm joined by two experts in the field today, Dr. Patrick Sparto and Dr. Samantha Michael. Dr. Samantha Michael is a physical therapist in the Vestibular and Post-Concussion Specialty Clinic at James A. Haley VA in Tampa, Florida. She had eight years of experience as a licensed physical therapist with six years experience in vestibular rehabilitation. At the University of South Florida, she received a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and a Doctorate in Physical Therapy. After receiving her degree and prior to her move to the VA system, she spent her first two years working for BayCare Hospitals in Pinellas County. She worked as an acute care physical therapist, spending most of her time at Mee's Countryside Hospital. While at Mee's Countryside, she led and coordinated the Student Clinical Observation Program. She also served as a vestibular specialist at Mead's Countryside. Her career at the VA has included work in several neurospecialty clinics before making the vestibular clinic and prep team her permanent home. Dr. Michael has achieved several APTA credentialed certifications to include vestibular rehabilitation from Emory University, advanced vestibular rehabilitation from Duke University, and cervicogenic dizziness. Dr. Michael serves as a faculty of the Physical Therapy Neurological Residency Program in the specialty areas of vestibular and post-concussion rehabilitation. She currently serves as a content expert in vestibular and post-concussion rehabilitation and presents on these topics to the Tampa VA Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Services residents, primary care and specialty providers both within the VA system and at MacDill AFB Medical Wing. Dr. Michael also presents on the topic of the relationship of the vestibular system and psychological disorders to both psychology and psychiatry residents and the staff of the VA. She also assists in teaching vestibular rehabilitation to the physical therapy doctoral students at the University of South Florida. Dr. Michael can be contacted at samantha.michael at va.gov. Welcome Dr. Michael. Thank you, Nikki. Dr. Patrick Spardo is an associate professor in the departments of physical therapy, otolaryngology, and bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Sparto received his PhD degree from Ohio State University in 1998. Dr. Sparto obtained his physical therapy degree in 1999 from the University of Pittsburgh. He treats clients with vestibular imbalance disorders at the Centers for Rehab Services in Pittsburgh, and is active in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Dr. Sparto's field of interest include neuroimaging, a balance and vestibular function, and management of vestibular disorders after concussion. Dr. Sparto has published over 80 reviewed articles and has received funding from the NIH and Department of Defense. Welcome, Dr. Sparta. Thank you, Nikki. The goal of the podcast today is to discuss the uses of virtual reality in vestibular rehabilitation, to review current technologies and treatments being utilized in the clinic, review research regarding virtual reality in the treatment of vestibular disorders, and help clinicians have a framework for deciding if virtual reality might be an option for their patients. So to get started, um, we're going to direct the questions to Dr. Spardo. In general, what is the role of virtual reality in managing patients with vestibular dysfunction?
2: Well, first off, I'd like to say this is a really new area, an exciting area, and uh, we're still learning a lot about it. But uh, we sort of see several ways that we think uh, virtual reality could be used. Uh, one of the things I think that's important um, to talk about is um, how uh, we think it could be used as an adjunct treatment for people with vestibular disorders. So um, after um, perhaps laying the groundwork with some of our clients with uh, more conventional exercises such as gaze stabilization exercises and, and static and dynamic balance and gait exercises, that our patients could move on to uh, uh, perhaps using virtual reality to help the um, Uh, move them on to more uh, functional uh, type of exercises and tailor it um, to the experience that they have and perhaps um, uh, tailor it to uh, some of the specific symptoms that they may be having. Uh, For instance, um, one of the common uh, symptoms that uh, people report across a lot of different vestibular disorders is what's called uh, supermarket syndrome where Uh, People will get increased symptoms in um, uh, shopping um, uh, markets or uh, uh, malls. And um, so um, several groups have considered um, and developed uh, virtual environments that consist of things like virtual supermarkets or virtual grocery stores um, to help um, habituate people to uh, the specific environment. So, um, uh, we see it as, as possibly um, being really adapting uh, the environment to um, symptoms that that people are having.
0: Yeah, I would um, completely agree with Doctor Sardo. Sp- Sorry, <laughs> um, right, and but... I was going to add to that too. Is that you know we do in our clinic, especially start with more conventional treatments. So whether it's the balance gaze adaptation, but this whole realm of virtual reality is very exciting because it also allows us to introduce a lot of these visual stimuli like the supermarket syndrome that patients would normally avoid to help the patient's response to be reduced to that provoking stimulus. So it helps reduce that fear of movement by offering a safe place to explore. So they're there with their physical therapist and they feel a little bit more apt to be, you know, a little bit more challenging and see what they can do with their balance with these challenging situations. And it allows for a more engaging way to adapt that, you know, um, vestibular ocular reflex and those optokinetic responses. And overall, it just leads to better compliance with treatment when it is more
2: engaging and fun. And one of the other, um, you know, potential areas that this really hasn't been studied. Uh, Specifically, but um, we know that uh, people with vestibular disorders are a very heterogeneous group and um, some may have more difficulty with uh, uh, visual motion sensitivity um, than others. Uh, We don't know yet um, whether virtual reality may be uh, better or, um, um, you know, uh, help. Uh, to provide um, perhaps a better uh, stimulation for people with visual motion sensitivity in terms of more gradually delivering um, the type of stimuli that they need um, but uh, uh, that's one direction you know I can see in the future as far as uh, helping to uh, tailor the environments to people with maybe a specific type of uh, impairments uh, within the realm of of vestibular disorders.
1: Great. Right. So both of you talked about some patients that um, you see benefiting from vestibular uh, from virtual reality treatment. Are there any instances or types of patients in which you think virtual reality would not really be an option for them at this point?
0: In my clinic, um, typically, we see these patients who have adopted these very um, kinesiophobic behaviors, so stiff movements, avoid turning the head, um, you know, scanning their environment, mostly due to overstimulation of their sensory systems. So in those cases, we would eventually work up, posing them to that virtual reality stimulus just depending upon, you know, how well they're doing with the more conventional therapies and how well we're able to get them to move more normally. And then also on top of that, you have patients, especially in our clinic, we see a lot of mild TBI, a lot of active duty guys who've been exposed to multiple blast traumas who have poor, uncorrected visual impairments that, you know, at this time, it may not be appropriate to expose them to virtual reality because of how that interface is going to be viewed for them. So for us, that's really important for us to work with our TBI optometrist to make sure that we are correcting, you know, that visual input to make sure they're receiving best benefit.
2: Great. I, I agree with you, uh, Samantha, and especially uh, the last part that you mentioned uh, can really be um, very much dependent on the type of technology uh, that is used in virtual reality um, because there are a variety of technologies. And... Um, uncorrected visual impairments, for instance, in using um, technologies such as you know, the head and displays where um, uh, the point of, of focus is, is up very close, um, you know, could um, interact uh, in a negative way for those people. So um, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about the different technologies later on. But um, uh, that's a really good uh, thing to to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, and I was actually speaking to uh, one of our recreational therapists who deals a lot with the different forms of head-mounted displays out there, and he has quite a few um, within his laboratory, a variety of different sets. And I was kind of explaining to him this problem that we have of our patients, you know, and you know, this this very stereoscopic kind of um, head-mounted display is hard for people who have vergence issues or uh, are unable to accru- accurately use the binocularity. Um, so he was showing me this kind of off-the-shelf, um, kind of off-market system that actually does monoscopic view where even you can take out, you know, um, one side and just use dominant eye. Unfortunately, though, you're kind of losing that um, real life aspect and you're kind of losing that depth in the high depth that you get with some of the other Head Mountain displays.
2: Right. Plus, um, I imagine it could. I'm not familiar with the specific headsets that you're talking about, but, um, you know, the impact on the amount of field of view that's available as well um, may lessen lessen the experience um, that people have compared to, when they're not using um, uh, those uh, headsets.
0: Yes, I agree. Uh,
1: Great. And both of you have um, sort of mentioned uh, a big idea that this population is pretty heterogeneous and there are a lot of things to consider when looking into virtual reality. Are there any certain key elements that you both consider when deciding if virtual reality would work and how you would tailor a treatment to a specific patient? Uh, We'll start with Dr. Michael on this one.
0: So when I'm looking at, you know, what type of virtual reality systems, you know, what I'm going to tailor for a specific patient, it's exactly that. I talk to the patient, kind of get a feel for what their issues are, you know, and a lot of my patients' big problems are being a passenger within a vehicle, walking in a crowded environment. So for them, I may choose, you know, more of um, kind of that display of walking through crowds trying to help minimize and reduce their anxiety over it by giving them tasks to do and looking within the crowd. Um, And then I also take into account, you know, what's the appropriate dosage for this individual, you know, and if it's somebody who is very sensitive, um, very new and acute, not slowly, and what's very common in our clinic is we ask them, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, you know, we haven't given that scale and we give them that warning, we want you to tell us when you're getting two, three points over what you, you know, that, that episode of dizziness, when you consider yourself raising up, let us know, we'll break away, do another task, you know, and let you settle down and calm down before we proceed on with it. But um you know, and I'll talk a little bit more about the different types of systems that are out there and what we have in the VA and why I typically will tend to use certain ones but you know if it's more balanced, I'm going to put them into a unit where I can you know manipulate the floor and the walls along with you know what the task that they're doing within the system or if it's more of that motion you know sensitivity that that kind of visual vestibular mismatch I'm going to display more of that optokinetic you know, the moving visual display for them.
2: And uh, Samantha brings up some really good points um, uh, with regarding to the um, amount of uh, supervision and guidance that's really needed. Um, You know, there uh, from time to time, you know, uh, in in a lot of different areas of of physical therapy, um, not just vestibular rehabilitation, but People come up with ideas for different apps or different technologies that could be used for a certain um, condition or, or group of impairments. And really, what's critical is the guidance from the physical therapist, who has experience to know uh, what um, are the the starting points that are needed and the best type of things to use. Um, you know, because um, you know, just taking something off the shelf and and giving it to a patient or if a patient just sees an app in the app store or or, uh, whatever and buy it without uh, knowing how to use it, I think can be to the the real detriment. So um, there really is um, uh, an interaction that needs to occur with uh, the physical therapist in order to uh, deliver the best treatment. So, um, you know, I I think that um, that's uh, something that, uh, perhaps we um, need to get out in terms of education um, for for people um, to know that you know you need to be working with a, a skill provider in order to to make these things work.
1: Great, and uh, you both have sort of touched on the different variations of technologies that are currently available. At uh, this time, I'd like to talk about some of the new technologies that are available and how they might target vestibular impairments. So we'll start with Dr. Spardo on this one.
2: Sure. So there, there are uh, a whole host of different systems out there, and um, uh, there can be a range. And, and uh, sometimes I'm picky um, of what uh, I actually call... Um, uh, virtual reality as opposed to um, extra gaming and things like that. Um, so um, I usually reserve the term virtual reality for things that are meant to simulate real world environments and in place the person in these uh, environments as opposed to um, uh, things um, like games where you're playing a game and it's accomplishing a goal to address an impairment, but, um, person isn't really trying to perceive um, that they're um, in the environment. So anyway, the different technologies that are available, um, you know, r- relate to things like um, some of the gaming platforms like um, uh, Xbox or uh, um, uh, the Connect, Microsoft Kinect um, or Wii. Um, And then uh, there are uh, different um, that are specifically meant to be virtual reality platforms that are available, Um, and uh, I'm not going to um, name the specific ones, but, um, um, you know, you can do uh, sort of a a web search for those. But um, uh, those, uh, there are uh, companies that, um, you know, are developing content and providing content for that. Um, uh, in addition, uh, there are um, um, different technologies in terms of uh, moving from head mounted displays or those headsets that people typically associate with virtual reality um, to things such as more um, full field of view, large screen uh, displays um, that uh, can be more expensive. Um, And um, in addition, uh, there are also, uh, sort of the newest thing that's out there that's related to virtual reality is uh, something that's called augmented reality, which uh, again, sort of exploits using more of the head-mounted displays. But uh, what augmented reality does is superimposes um, a a display uh, onto sort of your real field of view so that you're seeing virtual objects in and amongst um, different um, objects that you can see in your field of view. So um, uh, that's really sort of the the range of the, the VR systems. Um, and then uh, there are some, uh, I guess, low-tech options, which uh, we may talk about a little bit. But um, one of the um, uh, issues in terms of anytime time there's new technology is the technology comes out um, ahead of um, uh, the content. And it, it can take a while to see um, specific content uh, come out for uh, a particular um, area of rehab. And um, I think um, uh, that's an area that, that needs to grow uh, with respect to uh, vestibular disorders.
0: Yeah, and Patrick, I was, the augmented reality, I was doing some research on that as well. And I saw, you know, a couple companies coming out with some pretty impressive technology. And again, it's going to be a matter of you know, how much development there's going to be out there for that and how much it's going to be able to apply to vestibular rehab. But looking at, at some of these, um, they, they they termed it as almost holographic technology. So um, the particulars, um, it was kind of like a suite that I saw was looking at, you know, teaching anatomy and, the, and kind of presenting the musculoskeletal system in the human body right there in the room. Um type deal or even gaming platforms where it's the images being like a holographic display within the background that you're currently in. um I know some of the head mounted displays that we use um at the the v a hospital. What I like about them is is they you know they also have the hand controls that allow you to interact and manipulate the environment too, so um you know we can display array of real-world situations. So we had um, a few individuals who in the military were pilots, so we were able to uh, talk to one of the therapists. She worked very closely with the um, the recreational therapist who helped design and was able to get the exact plane that that individual flew within the military. The cockpit looked the same, and, and you know, the, the patient was floored, and he was a lot more engaged. And And, you know, wanting to work and and be up and do balance techniques with that. Um, And then also looking into the other stuff with the head mounts and displays, uh, there was this company out there that was, um, and again, I I still think it's in beta test phase, but they had um, incorporated this foam insert, which could be used with most of your VR headsets, most of the commercial ones that are out there. It actually has sensors that will detect electrical impulses within the face to create a neural signature of that individual's expression that can be then placed on an avatar. And, you know, how does that apply to vestibular rehab? And it doesn't, but at the same time, it, it's it's really kind of exciting to see the different things that are being incorporated into um, these head mounted displays and, and what's the possibility, what the future could hold biofeedback into virtual reality and a couple other systems that I know that we have um, at the VA, we have the IREX system, which, you know, it operates with video gesture control technology to allow the patient to see themselves in the virtual environment. So in a way it's very similar to more affordable systems like the Xbox connect. Um, but it's more of that green screen effect and it allows the patient to not just see an avatar, but see themselves. So it allows for real-time visual feedback on body positioning, weight shifting. Um, they're doing activities, you know, and it gives them a better understanding of the corrections that they need to make to improve their balance and motor control. So the therapist is able to customize the games with their therapeutic goal in mind. So whether it be to promote, you know, movement of a single limb to balance exercises, plyometrics, or just more functional movement patterns, um, you know, that may promote the stimulation of the vestibular system. So a lot of our um, patients find that very engaging when they can see themselves. And instead of, you know, us just telling them, "Hey, I need you to, you know, shift your hips more over to the right or center your body over your hips," they're actually able to see what we're looking at, and it engages them a little bit more. And then we also have um, the Gesture FX programming, which is kind of an interactive projection and visual display system, which utilizes that. Um, gesture recognition technology and allows an individual to manipulate the environment with either a wave of their arm or a swipe of the foot. Um, and we have both the wall effects and the floor effects within our facility, which allow for a immersive visual stimulation that promotes movement and interaction. And I know most vestibular or most lucky vestibular centers who um, are able to work with the NeuroCom. We just had ours updated, and within the new software for it, there was a NeuroGames component in there that allowed for kind of like the interactive gaming, whether you know it just be kind of Bejeweled or Chess or Solitaire, but what we like about it is we're able to manipulate the floor and visual surround so that we can vary the complexity and challenge multiple sensory systems allowing for, multi, you know, optimal use of that vestibular system to help the patient maintain their balance. So we're very lucky within the VA that we have all that stuff in our clinic.
2: Yeah, so that, uh, uh, those are a lot of uh, really nice tools. Um, I want to go back for a second, Samantha, mm-hmm. um, because I think you mentioned something that's really important, which is, uh, you know, you establishing uh, connections and contacts with people who uh, you can work with to help develop, you know, some of the, the different in environments and, and stuff to adapt it to people. So, you know, I encourage people, you know, if they want to get in this area to sort of make friends with, um, you know, the other therapists who are using it and also making friends where they can with um, maybe the um, uh, some technical people who uh, would maybe be able to help them to develop um, different environments on the different platforms um you know they don't have the uh, the maybe the specific knowledge of um, developing the different environments, so I thought that was really good oh yeah we are, well. we're
0: very lucky um you know that our um you know recreational therapist he you know has access to these different programming um that we can detail to our patients you know and and because it is so sad when you look at some of these companies and you see what they have to offer and you know it's okay but it just might not necessarily get to the target of what you're trying to work with with the majority of your patients or there might be that one patient that's just you know an outlier that you, you know you just think wow if I just if I could just change this a little bit this could really engage the patient and just be a little bit more effective for what we need. Right. It
1: certainly sounds like there's a wide variety of different systems out there um, that can tailor from pretty high tech to um, some of the lower tech options. So I was wondering if we could talk about some options for those uh, that don't have access to virtual reality. Are there any alternatives um, or treatments that you can use to sort of replicate the benefits of these without actually having the technology?
2: Uh, I'll go ahead and, and start with that. So um, actually in our clinic we don't have um some of the, the the same um tools or technology um that they have at the v a even though we've developed some of our own uh tools um uh those can be uh, in some cases sort of very uh time intensive uh to use and uh, may not uh, work best within the sort of the time constraints of the the normal clinic schedule so um you know we have a variety of of, of lower tech Uh, options uh, in our clinic um, that we use um, that we think uh, sort of fulfill uh, or drive towards the same goals in terms of providing gradual exposure um, to visual environments, um, but um, uh, without um, some of the um, cost and expense. So, for instance, uh, you know, just doing simple things like using different uh, optokinetic patterns um which many um vestibular rehabilitation PTs um uh already use, whether it's uh just um patterns that can be placed on the wall um to using a device such as the, the spinning lights or the uh quote unquote disco balls um to do that. Um and then uh, sort of the next um sort of step up from that is um uh, displaying uh, different uh, environments or videos on uh, either a computer monitor uh, up to uh, larger uh, television monitors. And, um, you know, we, uh, there hasn't been research to show, you know, uh, a favor of uh, one of those forms versus another, but it seems to me that um, having a a larger display screen Um, uh, ultimately may provide uh, some uh, better visual stimulation compared to um, smaller screens. So um, uh, I think those uh, can be um, the first line um, of defense of things to try. Um, And then the other thing um, that we haven't talked about yet is the concept of, what can be done in the clinic versus what can be done at home. And uh, a, a lot of the virtual reality technologies uh, may not be ready uh, for people to use at home either uh, because of the expense of it um, or, um, you know, it, it, there's a, a device that can be used in clinic and we can't send that home with the patient. So try to think of things that um, uh, the patients could do at home. And certainly um you know, anyone can, um, uh, if you have a computer and Internet access, go to YouTube. And um, there are, are YouTube videos out there that people have produced that uh, simulate different uh, optic kinetic stimuli. So uh, people could do that at home, either on their computer monitor or uh, connected to uh, their smart TV, if they have one of those, where um, they could do some of those um uh, visual um, uh, simulation and um, habituation activities at, at home.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with Patrick. Um, you know, we have a lot of this great technology at the VA, but honestly, when I'm talking with my patients and I get to the root of what their problem is, it you know, it's just easier for me sometimes to pop up in our, our wall projector and um, bring up YouTube, for example, and you can search... Anything on YouTube. And, um, you know, I, I work with two great therapists and our clinic, Dr. Sarah Weaving and Dr. Karen Scott. And Dr. Karen Scott actually has created a YouTube channel with a lot of um, visually provoking movies, anything from 3D abstract moving objects to visual flow to optokinetic display to first person point of view movies. And, you know, just going on there and searching, you can find a variety of movies ranging from you know, first person point of view of walking through crowds to a busy supermarket to kayaking on the water, or riding a roller coaster. Um, and, you know, then the clinician can also incorporate compliant surface while they're looking at that stuff to not only provide that visual confrontation, but challenge the amount of sensory input. And so sometimes my homework for my patients will be, you know, this is what we worked on, you know, looking at, you know, um, riding through the vehicle on curvy roads, but when you go home, I can actually prescribe them. I want you looking up these videos listed here. And so it's something that they can look at, just expose themselves, and then give them that guidance of, you know, look at it for only this amount of time or until your symptoms elevate by a certain degree. And and by that time, we've already been working within the clinic so they know. But, um, yeah, working in the private sector where we didn't have a lot of stuff, um, you know, it was crazy even just pulling the curtain back, um, you know, in our acute care rooms and using the very colorful hospital curtains that they have there and, you know, using that as a background for patients could work as well. So there's definitely a lot of options out there for clinicians, you know, who might not access that higher tech. Um, They just have to be a little bit creative and keep in mind what, you know, they need to, what the patient
2: needs. Samantha, I, I was uh curious talk a little bit about um what you do um as far as uh the dosing, uh the amount of um uh, this uh, whether it's uh you know some of the optokinetic stuff versus the stuff that you do in clinic uh with yeah, regard to um the the virtual reality um environments.
0: You know, it really depends on the patient because I have those patients that are are the typical under-reporters. So you're looking at their face and they're telling you, you know, okay, I start at a 2 out of 10 on my dizzy scale. I've only moved up to a 3, but they look like they're about to fall over and need the trash can. So I know that clearly they have gone much higher than a 3. So I kind of gauge it based on the patient, but typically I tell my patients, You know, whatever scale that you're at, so zero being no dizziness at all and ten being you're so horribly dizzy that you're on your knees, you know, getting sick into a trash can, I need to take you to the emergency room, um, wherever you're starting for that day, so whether it be a two, three, four, I don't want you to go over two two or three points on that scale. And now some patients that I have um, that – I think, are over reporters, so, you know, you see them just start to move and, you know, they're telling you they're an 8 out of 10, but they're standing there just fine. I may challenge them a little bit more and say, hey, let's start out with just going for three minutes and see how you do. You know, and I'm looking at that postural sway. I'm looking at their response to things and I'm constantly monitoring that because, again, you know, that visual analog scale is completely subjective and, you know, us as clinicians, we have to look at our patients and see what's going on. Um, I, I make my clinical determination at that point. But a lot of times for the at home, what's most important for me is the recovery phase. So I tell them, you know, whether it's I don't want you to go above two to three points on, you know, your dizzy scale or whether it's I only want you to go for two to three minutes, whatever target I'm giving them, whether it's, you know, more qualitative or quantitative, you know, when you sit down and relax, I want your symptoms to settle back to baseline So, again, whether that's that two to three that you started at, if you got it to a five, I need you to come back down to that two to three before you progress on with your treatment. And a lot of times I tell them, A3 baseline, I want you to stop the exercises for the rest of the day because we want to avoid that overstimulation of the system because I feel like that's just so much of the downfall of our patients is they feel, especially in my military population, that more is better. And if there's no pain, no gain, That's not true because then they're just setting themselves up for failure and they're getting even more sick. So I try to explain it to them. And a lot of my active duty guys understand this is when you go to the gym, you know, you're doing your repetitions on your bicep curl. If the muscle starts to fatigue, you start to get that shaking. Do you pick up a larger weight? And they will typically say, no, I give it a little bit of a break. And I said, well, then why wouldn't you give your inner ear system a break too? Because if you progress on to picking up that larger weight, then just picking up your socks off the floor is going to be a painful activity for you. In the same sense, if you try to push your vestibular system anymore, the slightest thing is turning your head to look when someone calls your name is going to be very um, kind of sickening and, and, you know, bring on that motion sickness. So I really drive home the whole let's, let's avoid this overstimulation for them.
2: Yeah, and the sort of guidelines that you were just talking about are something, you know, that's really consistent with what we follow in in our clinic in terms of exposure and making sure that we're uh, consistently monitoring their symptom level and, um, you know, exposing them so it brings up the symptoms a little bit but also returns back to their baseline. So, um, you know, I think that's a really sensible um, way to go about it.
0: And the same sense that you talked about, what's important is that they are raising their symptoms up. And, and this thing, you know, not just with traditional, you know, gaze adaptation and vestibular exercises, but with VR too, because we explained to them that, you know, you don't learn from your successes, you learn from your failures. And the only way the brain is going to learn to either habituate to the response or learn to make that adaptation is to understand what the error message is and then correct for it. So, again, if the patient is not provoking any symptoms or um, showing any signs of postural instability, then we might have to consider that the avenue that we're going just might not be what they need at this time.
2: Right.
1: And regarding um, research out there, both of you have talked about some great clinical guidelines. Um, Are there any research studies that we know of that point to vestibular disorders that respond really well to virtual reality or those that don't? we just kind of discuss the current state of where we are. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Spardo on that.
2: Yeah, so um, uh, I did a little review of, of this area um, not too long ago, and I don't uh, know um, if we have a good answer about uh, which uh, specific sort of diagnoses within vestibular disorders um this uh, may be best for um so far, most of the studies have uh either done a um, more uh well defined homogeneous peripheral vestibular disorder population um where you know there really hasn't been much variation in terms of um what the the causes are um or um a very heterogeneous population where um, uh, there wasn't uh, enough statistical power to separate people into groups. Uh, in addition, there have been smaller studies um, that are more like case studies that have, for instance, looked at um, uh, people with uh, concussion and vestibular symptoms. Um, and then also um, I think there's one um, that has looked at um, uh, just people with um Meniere's disease. So I think it's really too early to tell um, if there are uh, specific um, groups um, that may benefit or uh, in effect uh, maybe have some negative outcomes with that. Um, So um, it's definitely an area that I believe uh, needs more study. Yeah,
0: I would agree with Patrick, you know, and, and the the studies that I had reviewed. Again, like you said, it was more of just this, you know, vestibular dysfunction. Um, there was that one study, I had read it as well, um, regarding Meniere's disease, and they showed some good progress with that. But I think what was more telling was um, in, in some of the studies how, you know, what they found was, you know, good effect both with controls and experiments, but where a lot of the gains were is that it would was most beneficial in reducing that visual vertigo, the motion sensitivity, and a lot of the psychological symptoms that are associated with this refractory dizziness. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what different research is going to be coming up regarding, um, you know, that, that triple PD and um, a lot of those, you know, psychogenic dizziness cases and I know, you know, there are some studies out there, one which just published in 2018, um, that kind of based back on, you know, Dr. Rothbaum and colleagues and what he did in dealing with people with fear of flying and agoraphobia and using virtual reality with that patient population and how they were able to help reduce the symptoms, subjective complaints, and some of the kinesiophobic um, behaviors that those patients had. And and I'm really looking forward to seeing where the research is going to go with that in regards to, you know, our triple PD patients.
2: Yeah, I think um, uh, that population um, in particular, uh, which we know has uh, some elements of um, uh, difficulties with exposure to um, uh, different environments and uh, perhaps elevated uh, visual vertigo, um, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's a it's a population um, you know that really needs, I think, some um, um, better um, solutions um, to their problems. So uh, I think we need to be creative and, and see uh, different ways that that we can uh, help that group.
1: And both of you have um, talked about of the different characteristics you look for in patients to decide if um, virtual reality may benefit them or not, um, sort of the optokinetic sensitivity. Is there any time during rehab when you would really consider incorporating virtual reality? Is that something you would say on eval day that I think I want to start virtual reality with this patient, or do you typically start with a normal vestibular rehabilitation first and then progress to the virtual reality? Uh, we'll direct this to Dr. Michael first.
0: Yeah, so um typically when I have a patient who, you know, they they get started on their home exercise program and they're really quick to catch on. So, you know, they're they're doing well, they're progressing well with it, they're not having any issues, but they're still telling me, you know, I I'm just having issues as far as driving in the vehicle. The exercises are going well and yes, I'm not getting as dizzy with them, but driving in a vehicle or going to stores is still really you know, problematic for me, you know, that's what I consider some of those higher level areas that we need to work on that visual vertigo. So for them, absolutely, I would, um, you know, go ahead and start them on VR to help progress what they've already been doing. Um, and, you know, we mostly use it a lot in our clinic with patients who their main complaint is motion sensitivity or this visual vestibular mismatch, so it might not necessarily be the head turning or any movement for that matter. It's just being in a very visually provoking environment. Um, You know, and most most of the diagnoses would absolutely um, benefit from this, but we tend to typically, you know, advance our patients to it. Or, you know, in our typical clinic where we have active duty population, um, who they have higher demands. So, you know, it, it's not just the typical office worker going to the grocery store, but it's, you know, it, it's running, it's, you know, um, you're looking for targets, being in very visually complex environments. You know, I will typically start them on vestibular rehab right away because they're already functioning at a higher level than a lot of my traditional vestibular patients that I have. Um So, typically, with those patients, I'll just go right towards the virtual reality as the option.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good way to do it. Um, uh, So, the the people who who I have used it with, um, you know, have um, typically progressed beyond, um, you know, where the uh, typical um, VOR or gaze stabilization, VOR times one, or gaze stabilization exercises really aren't um, uh, increasing symptoms very much anymore. And then I'll um, first do um, a small trial, you know, within the clinic to see how they respond to it. And then, um, really, uh, what I think is uh, important, and, and Samantha had mentioned this before, is sort of the next time um, I would see them in the clinic really ask them, well, how were you feeling after that? Um, you know, because sometimes um uh they go home and, you know, they're they're okay, but then later on, um, you know, that evening they report, Oh, you know, I, I was really feeling bad and, you know, and, you know, uh if if I've given them um you know, exercises um to do at home such as you know, using the different videos and such. Um, really asking them, well, um, you know, how how did that work for you, and um, what was your symptom level when you did those? And of course, that before giving this to them, uh, doing a lot of patient education uh, to let them know, uh, you know, that they needed really to pay attention to their symptoms uh, during and, and after performing those exercises. So. Um, you know, you can sort of get a feel for um, when they're ready for the, uh, the next level, you know, um, of exercises compared to uh, what would, what we would start off with them in the clinic.
0: Yeah, I agree, Patrick. And, and, you know, some of these patients who say, well, yeah, I just wasn't feeling well. I know um, a very real thing out there is this cyber sickness. Um, It's been in the literature, and, you know, I've seen a couple of cases of it in our clinic, too, and it's that, you know, due to that conflicting multisensory stimuli, but, you know, it's more than just the the complaints your patients are coming to you with. It's that after that exposure, it's that increase in the motion sickness, whether it's nausea, vomiting, headache, loss of balance, altered eye-hand coordination, more so than what they typically experience. Um, with their day-to-day functioning. And, you know, those patients have to be very careful and take a look at, you know, is this not an option or are we just progressing them too quickly or is the interface we're using um, just too complex for them at this time?
2: Right. I agree.
1: Great. Thank you both. That was a great explanation. Um, So we've covered a lot of things today regarding different areas of research and considerations for patients. Uh, At this time, I just want to see if either of you have additional points you would like to make, and um, any comments regarding the use of virtual reality um, in your clinical settings? Uh, we'll start with Dr. Sparto.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to talk briefly about a couple of the, uh, you know, limitations um, or um, things to consider. Um, you know, as as these uh, technologies become more available and um, the the physiotherapists um, are able to use this. Um, Um, You know, besides some of the obvious things such as, uh, you know, the cost at this point um, uh, may be prohibitive from an individual uh, patient doing it at home perspective, um, you know, not necessarily uh, for the clinic uh, perspective, but a a couple of factors which uh, seem like they could be important, but um, we really don't know, for instance, is if... um, uh, you're using the type of virtual reality that includes a head-mounted display. Um, the size and the weight of the head-mounted display could make uh, uh, be an important factor to consider, uh, because consider that if you're doing a training with a person with a head-mounted display, um, you're you're changing in effect the inertia of the head. So when they are doing uh, different movements, for instance, if they were doing a, a VOR times one movement where they're moving their head back and forth, um, that's going to be um, using a different uh, weight and inertia of the head compared to if they didn't have the head mount display on. So um, is that somehow um, causing some um, perhaps uh, mal-adaptation in the central nervous system with um, uh, when it comes because it's it's basically a, a multisensory stimulus, another thing that could be important, uh, but we don't know for sure is uh, the field of view of the um, uh, the virtual reality display so um, one of the sort of consistent findings in literature that's uh, been around for for quite a while is that uh, the importance of peripheral Uh, visual cues when it comes to uh, postural control. And um, most of the um, virtual reality headset technologies really have a very limited field of view that is uh, limited to maybe um, plus or minus 30 degrees from midline uh, in the horizontal uh, direction or or plane. Um, So uh, by virtue of using... Uh, those technologies uh it may be missing out on some of the very important movement cues that we get from more in the periphery um now there could be uh a, a benefit to that in terms of uh the, the stimulus may not be as provocative which may be good uh for some people um but in terms of returning them to um the um you know the natural state which is um walking through environments with a full field of view that we, we normally have available, perhaps there could be uh, a difference uh, in that. Um, we don't know yet how uh, compliant uh, people are um, with um, using um, uh, such virtual reality technology at home and um, uh, you know uh, or does it make hopefully it makes people more compliant because they're more engaged? and excited about doing it, um, but uh, it's something uh, we need to find out. Uh, and then uh, getting back to one of the, the early things that we talked about, which was uh, are there imp- impairments in the visual system um, that may uh, affect their ability to uh, use um, head-mounted displays um, as, um, as a tool, uh, for the treatment, um, so for the people can't converge well um, and they're using virtual reality displays that um, uh, require that or um, you know, require accommodation or if uh, the virtual reality displays uh, do not uh, allow for them to have their um, uh, corrected vision such as glasses um, can can those things. Um, be used. So uh, as we st- uh, started off at the beginning and mentioned, um, you know, we're, we're still really early and, um, you know, I, I think it's a, um, uh, an area um, that we need to push forward, but um, you know, we, we need to see how some of these factors uh, affect the, the delivery of the, the therapy.
0: Yeah, Patrick, I agree. And I think that the biggest um, point that you made there and, and the problem that I have in our clinic Is you know um, This compliance and you know We know that whether the 30 To 60 minute sessions that we Spend with our patients whether it be one to two Times a week that's not where the real Work is done we're introducing the work There but it's their diligence And the home exercise program that They're carrying out at home that's it's Going to be the real bread and Butter for their treatment and their progress and so, with using these head mounted displays, you know, I honestly don't know any of my patients who own a head mounted display that you know if I use that content, I can have them translated home. That's why we do kind of those YouTube videos. but what um what I typically give my patients is is actual real life homework and it it's kind of this exposure you know um you know bouts of forced exposure, so okay. You know, the past couple weeks, we've been we've been working really hard on this visual stimulus of walking through busy, crowded environments. I want you to take it slow. I would like for you to maybe go to Target during, you know, a non-busy hour and, and do it for 15 minutes without holding on to the grocery cart. You know, looking at the aisles, sometimes I'll give them a game to play. You know, let's start with the alphabet. You have to turn your head and look and, and find something that starts with the letter A or something that starts with, and go keep going down. Um, until you either reach 15 minutes or reach the alphabet, you know, the end of the alphabet. So give them goals that um, they can translate into the real world because that's our ultimate goal for, you know, virtual reality. It's not not to become a bunch of people engaged in gaming. It's to get them back out into the real world. So, you know, we use that platform in our clinics to help introduce them back into, you know, that real-life environment so that they can translate that to when they go home. And what I always tell my residents and students, the most important thing is, you know, bring it all back. It, it comes back to what is the patient struggling with? You know, any technician can put somebody in front of a computer um, with fun moving objects, but you have to have a goal in mind. And that's why we're doctors of physical therapy. You know, we we take into consideration, you know, what are our goals for this patient? You know, what are our, you know, visually, um, the, the vestibular input, you know, what type of stimulation do we want to give them and what are our end goal? How is this going to help rehabilitate them to regain that functional loss that they came to us for?
1: Great. Thank you both. You've made excellent points. Um, absolutely um, made the point of how clinically relevant virtual reality can be to treating patients with vestibular disorders and how clinicians all over can start to incorporate this into their setting, whether they have the use of technologies or not, um, and as to what levels they can use that in. So I wanna thank you both for joining me tonight. Appreciate you taking the time out of your days to come discuss with us, and we appreciate your continued um, dedication to the field and pushing forward, and hopefully we get to see some of these great new advances you all discuss come out soon in the future. Thank you so much, Nikki. It was a pleasure.
2: Yeah, and thank you for putting this together, Nikki.
1: Absolutely. And for our listeners, uh, we hope you stay tuned for our future episodes. Take care.
2: Bye. Bye.